0: there are a handful of helpful themes that historians use to trace and chart the assimilation and reception of neoplatonic language and ideas into the world of the early Kabbalists. we're going to be looking at three themes here emanationism negative theology and union mystica This series is being produced in collaboration with some of my great friends and scholars over here on YouTube, Justin Sledge on Esoterica, Philip Home on Let's Talk Religion, Angela Puka on Angela's Symposium, Dan Atrell on The Modern Medicist, and John Verveke, links all down in the description. Hey, what's up, seekers? Welcome back. There are a handful of themes that historians use to trace the assimilation of Neoplatonic language and ideas into the world of the Kabbalists. The first and perhaps most obvious is the Neoplatonic theme of emanation, the belief that God or the One does not create the world in some kind of voluntary act, bringing something outside of it from nothing suddenly into being but rather that God or the One emanates existence from itself by the very definition of its own goodness and fullness, continually flowing its own being into existence as we know it. Next there is the Platonic theory of forms, namely the existence of perfect archetypes from which all perceivable reality is derived as mere imitations of the forms each thing in existence striving to reach more realness by better and closer approximating its ideal form. A circle down here in this world that you and I know and see, reasons Plato, is a mere approximation of the circle, the idea of circularity itself. And the closer the terrestrial circle that you and I can see is to the true form or idea of the circle, the more circular it is. And the same applies to all things for the Platonists. A few hundred years down the line, by the time we get to the Neoplatonists, this theory of the forms becomes incorporated into the theory of emanation and takes on a hypostatic nature, namely that the primary forms that emerge from the One are seen as metaphysical entities, these divine powers which constitute the very chain of being itself, mediating between the one and the many, between absolute reality and our imperfect reality down here, this flowing from absolute unity into plurality and multiplicity. The purpose of this great chain of being comprising of these ideal forms serves as a philosophical purpose, it serves to answer the most basic metaphysical question of philosophical mysticism, the problem of the one and the many. The problem is, how does the one, the infinite, the incomparable, bring into being our world, the many, that which is finite, composite, contingent, and flawed? We all know that the gap between the infinite and the finite itself, that gap is infinite, and should be logically impossible to cross. The brilliant mechanism that Neoplatonism employs to bridge this impossible gap, is this emanative process known as the Great Chain of Being. The typical order of this chain found among the Neoplatonists begins with as we said the One, which is beyond all being and description. The One, through a process of reflecting upon itself, produces a perfect mirror image of itself known as nous or intellect what we might today call consciousness or mind at large. Now this mind as the Neoplatonists have it, in turning its gaze from the One, produces soul, also known as world soul, which in turn emanates nature or the material world as we know it. That is a very, very basic overview of the primary tenets of the Neoplatonic chain of being. Check out Philip's video for a much more detailed elaboration on the Great Chain. This Neoplatonic interpretation of the theory of the forms from Plato is seen by Moshe Idel and others as finding articulation in the Kabbalistic theory of the Sefirot, the divine channels by which the ineffable Ein Sof, the infinite God of the Kabbalists, the One, emanates itself into our multifaceted reality. The third theme that academics use to trace the reception of Neoplatonism into the world of the Kabbalists is the theme of union mystica, or as the Neoplatonists know it, henosis, the mystical union becoming one with God. The idea that the human can traverse, transcend, and climb up beyond the realm of the material, out of the proverbial platonic cave of shadows, to reach the sun itself, to unite with God, or to become one with the one, henosis, Or, as the Kabbalists might call it, to reach a state of Dveikut, achtut, or Yechud, with the infinite Sof, with God itself. And lastly, to trace the Neoplatonic reception amongst the early Kabbalists, we have the theme of negative theology, the concept that nothing can be known or said about the One or God, that we cannot come closer to God through any positive affirmations, but that we can only negate all that stands between us, to come closer to that which is unthinkable unspeakable the ineffable or as the kabbalist and jewish philosophers put it that when it comes to god the pinnacle of knowledge is to know that one does not know and only in that not knowing can one come to know something what we would call negative theology also sometimes known as apophatic theology The activity of tracing the influence of one broad and diverse school of thought on another equally broad and diverse one is a difficult and treacherous one, some would say a foolhardy one, and requires an intimate knowledge of numerous texts and thinkers from both schools in their original languages and contexts, as well as a sensitivity to the cultural and linguistic particularity of each of the compared parties, and a constant vigilance for parallelomania, the fallacy of seeing patterns and connections, parallels where none such exist. And even then, with all that and with years of training, comparative work is still in practice often more of an art than a science, betraying often more of the subjectivity of the comparer than the facts on the ground having said all that we are going to engage in this art of comparison because it's as important as it is tricky to guide us along with our comparison we're going to use the themes we outlined above as broad signposts along the way and we'll try bolster the case that we're making with more specific examples and quotes from the Kabbalists themselves throughout the ages to kick off our study of the relationship Between the Kabbalists from 12th century Provence to 16th century Safed and the Neoplatonic philosophers from Plotinus in the 3rd century to the closing of the Platonic Academy by Emperor Justinian in the 6th, we must begin with one of the many streams that flow from these late Greek philosophers that bridge them with the 12th century Kabbalists, namely the medieval Jewish Neoplatonists. The Jewish Neoplatonists and Neoplatonically influenced Jewish philosophers spanning from Isaac Israeli in the 10th century to Solomon Ibn Gabriel and Bachir Ibn Pakudeh in the 11th to Abraham Ibn Ezra and Yehudah Alevi in the 12th are, according to Altman, Stern, Afterman, and others, the first to articulate a Jewish version of Neoplatonism, a Jewish version of the Neoplatonic journey and goal of the human soul, to unite with God, to reunite with the One. What these brilliant Jewish thinkers working over the course of three centuries do, is interpret rabbinic Judaism through the lenses of the dominant philosophical school of their time, creatively rereading the neoplatonic journey of emanation from and return to the One, the ascending journey of purification, illumination and mystical union, reading this as the inner purpose of Judaism and the meaning of her commandments. With a particular focus on the Biblical commandments to cleave to God, the Gabo, which was now read as an instruction for a spiritual return and mystical union with God, a reading which is not done up until the 10th and 11th century with these Jewish Neoplatonists. We now, reading these Biblical verses a thousand years after the Jewish Neoplatonists made this creative, philosophical, spiritualized reading, we take it for granted, and we may even assume that it is the obvious straightforward meaning of the text. It isn't though. The fact that we think it is, is a testament to how successful their creative re-reading and synthesis of Judaism and Neoplatonism was this jewish platonized line of thinking spearheaded by isaac israeli expanded by ibn gabriel and continued by the ibn ezra's yehudah levi and Bahya ibn pekodei to quote adam aftman produced a revolutionary interpretation of judaism in neoplatonic categories of emanation illumination transformation and union with the one with god effectively reshaping rabbinic judaism by rebirthing a spiritual and mystical interpretation of the Biblical devekut in Platonic terms. This grand synthesis between Judaism and Platonism, the second of its kind, the first conducted by Philo of Alexandria a thousand years earlier, but by and large unnoticed in Jewish philosophical history, Philo found reception more in the early Christian church fathers than he ever did in Jewish philosophy, but this second reunion between Judaism and Platonism between Moses and Plato in the 10th to 13th century, went on, according to Altman and others, to bring an entirely new understanding of the biblical idea of Dvekot as union, as well as one which contained the entire Neoplatonic axis and spiritual transformation and return. The early Kabbalists, coming hot off the heels of these Jewish Neoplatonists, are well aware of what they are up to, and quote them repeatedly in their own treatment of the soul's union with the metaphysical realms and ultimately with god opening up our first real flow of influence of platonic and neoplatonic ideas into the fertile minds of the early Kabbalists. we've bunched these jewish neoplatonists into one bundle here for sake of convenience but in reality each one is up to their own thing and doing it independently in their own unique way I highly recommend reading chapter 5 in Adam Afterman's brilliant and they shall become one flesh to see each one fleshed out in some fine detail with copious quotations and citations to both primary and secondary literature that he's able to do there that we cannot do here in a brief YouTube video. Afterman traces the way in which this Neoplatonic concept and terminology of union was adopted into the Kabbalistic systems enriching the mystical path leading to union with the divine. The first Kabbalists, writing at the close of the 12th century in southern France and a little later in northern Spain, had an ear open to this Neoplatonic language of union and return which had already been made kosher by their Jewish philosophical predecessors. The early Kabbalists took on this spiritualized language, describing the overflow from the one from God as well as the return to God, the path of union and communion with one, combining it following their philosophical Jewish predecessors with the biblical commandments to cleave to God, giving birth to the kabbalistic version of dvekut one of the central goals in the life of the mystic and in their view of Judaism as a whole. The early kabbalists such as Yitzhak Saginar, Isaac the Blind, the first Kabbalists to commit Kabbalah to writing since the inception of Kabbalah proper on the European continent, added something unique to this story of union with God that differentiates it from the philosophers that preceded them. What they added would go on to be immensely important for all of Jewish mysticism to follow. What they added was that not only could the mystic practitioner come to a state of union or communion with God, an immensely purifying, transformative, and enlightening process for the mystic to experience and undergo themselves, reconstructing their very conception of self and their relationship with the world around them. But according to the early Kabbalists, those engaged in this process of coming close to and eventually uniting with God had a transformative and nourishing impact not only on themselves, but on God as well. The Kabbalists, in their uniting with God, achieved through the ritual performance of the mitzvot, prayer, Torah study, contemplation and meditation, kavanah and hitbonenut, saw themselves as partaking in the divine drama of creation, revelation and redemption, themselves playing a crucial redemptive role for God Godself, specifically for the feminine aspect of God, the Shekhinah, who sat in the dust of exile separated from her masculine counterpart, her lover, Kuchabricho, the Holy One, Blessed Be He. It was the Kabbalist's sacred duty to unite Kudshabrichu and Shekhinah, uniting God itself, redeeming God from its own state of exile and self-banishment, and in doing so, unite themselves, the collective souls of Israel and the world as a whole, back into its source in the One, in God, uniting the divine masculine with us, the divine feminine. The Kabbalistic work of Birurim, Tikkunim, and Yechudim, purification, reparation, and unification. In Neoplatonism, this would all fall under the category known as theurgy, the capacity for the human through their ritual or contemplative acts, while in a state of union, or her with God, to quite literally affect, change or influence God, to rectify the divine. Trippy stuff, I know. Here we see in the briefest of glimpses, to quote Ottoman one more time, one of the ways in which the early 13th century Kabbalists incorporated the language of union from various philosophical and theological sources, by which it introduced new forms of religious practices cultivating their profound interest in mystical experience and empowerment, vision and cleaving and union with God as a goal in and of itself, and incorporated these unitive practices as key elements in their theological performance. I hate to drop this on you like this, but I think it's important to complicate things just a little and try give a semblance of the complexity that this issue deserves to it. There's a theory put forth most recently by Adam Oftman, which turns this question of the direction of influence here on its head. This whole time, we've been tracing the influence of Neoplatonism on Jewish thinkers, but there might be good reason to believe that the influence also runs in the opposite direction, from a much earlier Jewish philosopher upon the very first Neoplatonists. Influence is a funny thing like that, as you'll see that when we zoom into it, it ends up looking a lot more like multiple streams continually converging and irrigating each other, often in wildly unexpected, unpredictable, and sometimes even unobservable ways, rather than a clear unilateral dump of ideas from one school to the other. The Jewish philosopher who influenced Neoplatonism that we're speaking of is considered the first Jewish philosopher ever, who precedes Plotinus, the father of Neoplatonism, by a good 200 years, a man by the name of Philo of Alexandria. Philo, living at the time in the rich cultural world of Hellenized Alexandria, engaged in a highly creative and influential attempt to synthesize Greek thought with the Bible, Philo in his work of synthesizing struck upon some radically rich ideas that would shape the future of religious philosophical thought for millennia. It's fairly well known that it's largely from Philo that the author of the 4th Gospel and the early church fathers get their concept of the Logos, the word made flesh, following Philo's creative synthesis of Platonic, Stoic and Biblical ideas. However, there's another concept which Philo potentially bequeaths to Western philosophical thought, whose transition is lesser known, but no less influential. Philo's reading of the biblical instruction, the biblical commandment, in fact, to cleave to God, through a platonic lens, namely of the ascent of the soul or the mind to the supreme form to the good, the reading together of these two notions argues Oftman brings to birth the very concept of union mystica, the belief that the essence of the individual, whatever it is, may ascend towards and actually unite with God. This union in Philo's reading is the intent of the Biblical commandment, and this reading, argues Aftman, goes on to influence and form the father of Neoplatonism, Plotinus's own notion of the ascent of the soul to the One the capacity for the soul to unite with it in a state of hypnosis, a state of at-one-ment, union mystica, a concept which he and his school then go on to bequeath to all of Western mysticism Jewish, Christian, and Muslim to follow. What we have here, according to this hypothesis, is a Hellenized Alexandrian Jew at the turn of the millennia, reading his Bible in Greek, literally and conceptually. Giving birth to the philosophical-mystical concept of mystical union, an idea which makes its way down the trickle of time 200 years on to Plotinus, the father of Neoplatonism, who goes on to make it a centerpiece of his exquisite philosophy which some 600 years later would be translated into Arabic, making its way back to Jewish philosophers studying their Muslim contemporaries and from them the idea would be passed on into the hands of the Jewish mystics, the Kabbalists, another about 200 years later, 1,200 years in total since Philo had first put together this idea in the depths of perhaps his own mystical ecstasy, philosophical speculation, or both. Somewhere, who knows, in the streets or grottos of Alexandria, a thousand miles from Provence, the birthplace of Kabbalah. The next theme that we're going to look at today is that of negative theology. The belief that no positive affirmation can be made about God or the One at all, and that the only way we can try, conceptualize, describe, or come close to God is by unsaying, by negating all conceptions and descriptions, yidiya the knowing of negation or absence as it's known in Hebrew. Knowing that we cannot know the via negativa, as it's known in Latin, the path of negation, which begins to some extent with Plato's Socrates, who knows only that he does not know. Negative theology really gets off the ground with Philo, who we spoke about earlier, the first Jewish philosopher, and Plotinus, the father of Neoplatonism, and goes on to become a staple of Neoplatonic thought, adapted into Christianity primarily by Pseudo-Dionysus, and flowers in Islam in people like Ibn Arabi and Rumi. In medieval Jewish thought, we find important expressions of negative theology, both in neo aristotelian works like Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed, and in Neoplatonic works like Ibn Gabri'el's *Fons Vitae* *Mekor Chaim, and subsequently, in the works of Kabbalists who are informed by them, and in conversation again with their Jewish philosophical predecessors, Again, drawing a chain back from the Kabbalists, to the Jewish philosophers, to the Muslim Christian philosophers, all the way back to Plotinus, Philo, and Plato. We've presented classes here before on the channel on Maimonides' Negative Theology, the most famous articulation of negative theology in Jewish history, and I recommend checking out those videos that we made if you'd like an understanding of some of the philosophical background to what we're about to discuss here in the world of the Kabbalists. There are many avenues through which one can approach a subject as large as negative theology in Kabbalah. It's really a huge place, and it's hard to know where to begin. Let us come at it then from one angle the name that the Kabbalists give to God, and see where that takes us. One of the primary names that the Kabbalists use to describe God is Ain Sof. You may be familiar with this term. Ain Sof is an explicitly negative term. I don't mean negative here, by the way, in like a value sense, but simply that it's a term which negates as opposed to a term which affirms. That's what I mean when I say negative theology. Don't think sad emo theologians, think negating theologians. Ain or ayin means non or without, and sof means end or limit. Ain sof together literally means limitless or infinite, namely, that about which we can say nothing other than that it has no limit. This classic Kabbalistic way of referring to God, simply as the absence of limit, is a classic negative term. The Kabbalists also refer to God simply as Ion, nothingness or emptiness, which only deepens their negative theology. Not only an absence of limit, just absence at all per se is how they describe God. There, in this absence of anything, according to the Kabbalists, one finds the true nothingness of God. Azriel of Girona, an early Kabbalist, in one line of many that deserves to be collected into a small book called Zankoans from the Kabbalists, describes, or rather, undescribes, the Sof as, without distinction, equally nothing and being, the complete simplicity and non-differentiation that is called unity. This negative conception is a radical notion of God, It is not merely a transcendent God that is beyond the world, but rather it is that which transcends transcendence itself, that which lays waste to the very categories of transcendence and imminence. It is none other than the none other to riff on Nicholas of Cusa, the one which transcends not only the category of numbers as per the Tikkuni Zohar, but that which transcends the very categories of being and nothingness itself, of existence and non-existence, that which to merely say so much as that it exists is already saying too much. This is a radical and sophisticated conception of God, and it's one which didn't just appear out of nowhere in the 12th century. shalom the famous founding father of the modern academic study of Jewish mysticism, who we discussed in the opening episode, theorized a Neoplatonic origin for the negative theology of the Kabbalists. But... He rejected a proposal made by earlier scholars that the Hebrew term itself, Ein Sof, was a translated form of the Greek Epirion or the Arabic La Nihia, which both literally mean that which is without limit, a peros La Nihia, without limit, which then would parallel the Kabbalists, Ein Sof, without limit. Sholem instead proposes that the term Sof was a mutation of the Hebrew phrase ad Sof, until no end, amongst others, but while rejecting the linguistic, this direct linguistic connection, Sholem did believe that conceptually the negative theology of the Kabbalists was almost identical with that of the Neoplatonists, giving the Kabbalists what Sholem delightfully calls a mystical agnosticism. This affinity between Neoplatonic negative theology and the Kabbalists' Ein Sof is not just one dreamt up by creative historians, but one which is observed and noted by the Kabbalists themselves. The 12th century Kabbalist Azrael of Girona, who we quoted earlier, writes, "Ein Suf is the absolute indistinctiveness in the perfect unity in which there is no change, and since it is limitless, nothing exists outside of it since it is above everything it is the principle in which everything hidden and visible meet and since it is hidden it is the source of both faith and disbelief the philosophers writes Azriel, agree with those who say that our comprehension of it can take place only through the path of negation here we hear the echoes loud and clear of the poetic philosophical negative mysticism of plotinus and his students throughout the ages Particularly, someone like the Jewish philosopher Yehuda Halevi, as Shalom points out in Azrael's description of the Ain Sof as both a source of belief and disbelief, theism and atheism. And Azrael acknowledges that this idea is shared by the philosophers and the Kabbalists, an observation of the similarity, not just conjured by 20th and 21st century historians, but one which the very first Kabbalists themselves recognize and don't mind admitting this adaptation of a mystical unknowable god just to go into this point a little does create some tension when contrasted with the personal creating ruling revealing and redeeming god of the bible and rabbinic literature a basic tension found in really any tradition that is both theistic and mystical in the western philosophical context this tension is often the result of the adoption and of the attempted amalgamation of Greek, specifically Neoplatonic, concepts like the one with the biblical or Quranic notion of God, who is typically a lot more than just an abstract, unknowable principle. This amalgamation project, which we know goes as far back as Philo of Alexandria at the turn of the millennia, continues right through the Middle Ages. For the philosopher, god is a principle a construct an it while for the religious thinker god is a person a reality a you the challenge and tension arises when the philosopher and the religious thinker are the same person what do they make of their god who is both principle and person both it and thou there's no one way that the Kabbalists answer this very difficult question their thinking is as diverse as any collection of individuals that have been lumped together by fate and history. Some early Kabbalists like Azreel of Jerona, in his commentary on the Tense Firat, at times identifies Ein with the God of the Bible, the Yotzer Bereshit, the Demiurge of Genesis, as they refer to him, the God who fashions the world into being, transforming, as Shalom puts it, the most hidden element in God, the God of the philosophers and mystics, into the most public, paving the way for the personalization of the term ain't-suff, which goes from being the designation of an abstract concept which we've been describing, a mere placeholder for that which cannot be placed or held, to becoming the proper name for the object of faith for millions a mixing of the personal and impersonal revealed and concealed, giving us the uniquely Kabbalistic expression Ein Sof Baruch Hu, Infinity, Blessed Be He. <laughs> oh, the irony. While other Kabbalists, like the great Nachmanides in his famous commentary on the Torah, avoids using the term Ein Sof almost entirely, sticking instead to traditional names for God, giving us reason to believe that for him, The God at play in Genesis through Deuteronomy is only that of God which manifests via the spherot, while the hidden infinite aspect of God, God as Ein Sof, as the infinite, unknowable, unspeakable, makes no appearance in the Bible. God as Ein Sof is so hidden that it plays no active role in religion. It is the abyss and ungrund hidden in the absolute nothingness of which we have only a vague, intimation, as Shalem puts it in his beautiful Germanic, it is nothing but the dark round from which the God of Revelation, who is the unity of the Ten Spherat, arises. It's not a very long road from the absence of Ein Tsof in Nachmanides' commentary on the Bible to the explicit statement made by an anonymous Kabbalist writing sometime around the beginning of the 1300s. He writes, Ein Tsof is not even alluded to in the Torah, the prophets, the hagiographers, the Torah Neviim and Ketuvim, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, or in the words of the sages, only the mystics receive a small indication of it, namely that the God of creation, revelation, and redemption, the God of the Bible, the God of religion, a divinity which has any relation to our world, is only the dynamic unity of the emanation of the Ten Sefirot. It is not God's true hidden self, the Ein Sof. You could see why the Kabbalists try to discuss their ideas with caution and not publicize them to just everyone and anyone. These are challenging and rightfully controversial thoughts about the most important questions of faith, God itself. Don't even get me started on the Kabbalists' extended deliberation on the question of the identity or non-identity of God as Ein Sof with the first Führer which represents for the Kabbalist God's will, Keter, a deliberation which so closely parallels the Neoplatonic question of the relationship between the one and the first emanation from the one Nous, mind, that if you took either of the texts and just replaced the Greek and Hebrew terms and strip them of any easy cultural identifiers, I really think that many a student of Kabbalah and philosophy would be hard pressed to tell you if what they had in their hands Belonged to Athens or to Jerusalem. Moshe Idel, who we mentioned earlier, buys into most of Shalom's theory here on the similarity between the Neoplatonists and the Kabbalists on this question of negative theology, but Idel objects to the assumption that this negative theology was the whole story for the early Kabbalists. Idel speculates somewhat curiously that the Kabbalists actually had two sides to their theology, one which was more exoteric more on the outside, the more the public version, which was the negative version of their theology, and one more esoteric, hidden, positive version of their theology for those who really knew what's up. Apophasis on the outside, cataphasis on the inside. Idel argues that the negative ain't self that we find in the early Kabbalists wasn't their truest esoteric theology. Their real esoteric belief was in an anthropomorphic infinity a infinity that which has no limits the infinite that also had some sort of human components or shape a secret belief that the infinite god which also included personhood the proper object for religious veneration was greater or in some sense truer than the contentless god of the philosopher if you want to see something really cool, check out Rudolf Otto's Mysticism East and West for a fascinating parallel in Hinduism in their preference for Ishvara, God as personhood, over Brahman, at times, God as the impersonal and transcendent. But getting back to our subject here of the Kabbalists, while this first exoteric reading of the Ain Saf as purely negative indeed does follow Neoplatonic thinking, according to Edel, this second inner deeper reading of God, this positive theology of an anthropomorphic structure in the infinite, is certifiably not neoplatonic. It's hard to say, writes Edel, how central the anthropomorphic theosophy may have been, this belief that the infinite God had some human characteristics, since it was treated as especially esoteric and was only recently been analyzed in scholarly studies. In time, we may discover more instances of a deeper, positive understanding of the ein Sof, and the relationship of Kabbalistic Theosophy to Neoplatonic negative theology may undergo some significant changes. So, whatever Shalm said, just hold that door open. For this reason, Adele cautions against assuming a strong Neoplatonic influence on early Kabbalistic negative theology and believes that we should be looking for this negative influence more strongly in the Kabbalists of the renaissance who we'll be covering in next episode and when we look for the early Kabbalistic influence of neoplatonism we should instead be looking in the positive realm of the Kabbalistic spherot in their relation to the neoplatonic chain of emanation as opposed to focusing on the negative side of the Kabbalistic theology let us stay for now in this moment of the early 13th century, but shift our focus from the negative theology of the Ain Surf to the positive theology of the virot and the theory of emanation, where Idel indicates the influence lies. One of the central problems facing the Neoplatonists and all subsequent metaphysical mystics, as we began to say earlier, is the problem of the one and the many. Simply, how does the infinite perfectly simple, beyond multiplicity, bring into being something which is fundamentally unlike itself, something which is multiple, fractured, broken, finite, namely, the world as we know it. How can the infinite be in relationship with the finite? How can the absolute relate to the here and now, the contingent? How do we reconcile the perfect with the arbitrary, the ideal with the actual, in other words? The answer to this question of the one and the many that the Neoplatonists developed would go on to be of supreme importance for religious thinkers of all faiths for millennia to come. The answer was that the one did not directly emanate and interact with the many, that would be simply impossible. Rather, that the one emanated a series of emanations, each one just slightly more susceptible to multiplicity than the one before it. And through this chain of emanations, the one could eventually bring multiplicity into being. The Neoplatonic great chain of being, as this process of emanation came to be known, went on to be replicated, riffed on, modified, modulated, and magnified by philosophers, mystics, and philosophical mystics for hundreds of years to come. The Kabbalists were no exception. Under their hands, this great chain, which they would call the Seder-Hishtal-Schlut, the order or chain of emanations, or declensions, would grow with each generation to greater levels of sophistication and complexity, within which they would build elaborate worlds and universes, languages and logics, chaos and order, myths and drama, paradises and angels, but perhaps most central to the Kabbalistic chain of being stood one central concept, the spherot. The first depiction of the Sfirot begins in the mysterious Sefer Yetzirah, the Book of Formation, in which the Sfirot are seen as something like ten mythical numbers with which God creates reality. In the early Kabbalistic authors, these mysterious Sfirot become not only the instruments by which God creates the world, but they also constitute the revealed side of the hidden God, the Infinite Sof, which we discussed earlier. In short, the Sfirot for the early Kabbalists are the way by which and as which God manifests, emanates God's self and the world into revealed existence. The tools by which God expresses God's self in the perpetual act of creation of the world. We're going to see some of the specific ways in which the Kabbalistic structure of the Sfirot so central to their thinking, derives a lot of its internal grammar from the Neoplatonic schema. We're going to try and be balanced here in our reasoning and try to find a middle ground between extremes, between traditionalists who claim that the structure and function of the Sfirot has nothing at all to do with Neoplatonism, and some academics who claim that the entire metaphysical edifice of Kabbalah owes its internal logic to Neoplatonism. Both positions, which seem to have some strong a priori assumptions, skewing a fair open examination of the evidence as it presents itself to us. Moshe Idel brings our attention to the central role played by the first three Sefirot in the early Kabbalistic thinkers, like Isaac the Blind and Jacob ben Sheshet. For these early Kabbalists, the first Sefirah, later known as Keter, the Will and Desire of God, the direct link to Ein Sof represents the subtle, unified beginning of existence, the starting point of emanation. The second sphera known as Chachma, Wisdom, God's thought, contains all of existence in its original, essential, ideational form. And the third sphera, Bina, represents the comprehensive comprehension of these divine ideas and essences the full detail of multiplicity contained within the second sphera is made explicit in the third. Thus, to quote Idel, passage from the first to the second sphera is a passage from unity to multiplicity, although the multiplicity is realized fully as such only in the third sphera. If the Neoplatonic parallel to this triadic emanative structure isn't jumping out at you by itself, let me allow Ben Sheshat, the Kabbalist, himself to explain. This is the statement of the philosophers, writes Ben Sheshat, the Kabbalist, who arrange these four, the intellect, the will, the spiritual and the natural. The will is the divine will, under it is the intellect, namely the active intellect, under that the soul, i.e. the intellective soul, under it the natural we see that the Aleph, the first sphere Keter in our terms, corresponds to the divine will in their terms, and Yud, the second sphere Chachma in our terms, corresponds to the active intellect in theirs, and so on. Without getting too deep into the weeds of ancient and then metaphysical comparative metaphysics, what we find here is the Kabbalists themselves drawing direct comparisons between their own cosmologies and metaphysics, their sacred structures of reality, which in their view, remember, derives from ancient unbroken traditions of Jewish mysticism, comparing these, these ancient ideas with positions found in the works of the philosopher, who we can assume here refers to Plotinus, as disguised most likely in the Arabic long version of the theology of Aristotle, where the divine will precedes nous, the active intellect, followed by soul and then nature an order and structure of reality that would have been familiar to the Kabbalists from the Jewish and Muslim Neoplatonists, thinkers like Ibn Gabriel, who placed divine will above Nous, above the intellect, in their own theologized versions of this classic Neoplatonic schema of the one, the intellect, world, soul, and nature. This acknowledgement of the correspondence of their own Kabbalistic mystical concepts with the Neoplatonic schema, despite the differences in terminology, which is clear, is repeated and made explicit by yet another of the founding Kabbalists, Azrael of Gerona, A contemporary of Ben Sheshat who we just quoted, Azrael writes, The words of the wisdom of the Torah and the words of the aforementioned philosophers are as one, their way is one, and there is no difference between them but the terms alone. Get that? Thus we see both Azriel and Ben Sheshet, two primary early Kabbalists, among the first to publicize Kabbalah to a wider audience, are also the first to recognize and note the similarity between Neoplatonic and Kabbalistic ideas, and not just random ideas but the most central ideas, perhaps even adapting their terminology when discussing the second spherah in a Neoplatonic direction to appeal more to their philosophical readers, according to Idel. To conclude this all-too-brief section on the Sfirot and their parallels with the Platonic forms and Neoplatonic hypostases, let us quote Idel one more time, who writes quite boldly and provocatively. The history of Kabbalistic Theosophy is to some extent the history of various understandings of the Sfirot and the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The fortunes of the Sfirot are an index of the growth of Neoplatonism in Kabbalah. If the success of the concept of the Srirat is indeed any barometer for the success of the Neoplatonic reception in Kabbalah, one need not look far to see how well that project went. The Srirat, shall we say, were quite the hit. Just to be clear, Idel is not claiming that all of early Kabbalah is some kind of ripoff of Jewish-Islamic Neoplatonism. Far from it, Idel is actually quite skeptical about what he considers the exaggerated formative role assumed by scholars of Neoplatonism on early Kabbalah. Idel shockingly argues that the antecedents of Kabbalah are not to be found primarily in Greek and pagan schools of thought, but rather within the texts and schools of Judaism herself, as the Kabbalists themselves affirm time and again that what they're simply revealing has been hidden in the Torah in the Biblical and Rabbinic texts of Classical Judaism all along. Idel believes that we must look to the Jewish literature available to the Kabbalists which they were most intimate with Tanakh, Talmud, Midrash, the Merkavan Hechalot, Piyot and Chakira poetry and philosophy of Judaism itself. What Idel proposes is a silent growth of ancient Jewish esotericism, a relatively organic evolution of Jewish mysticism that is consistent with the assertions of the Kabbalists themselves, who repeatedly assert that Kabbalah is a genuine ancient tradition, an esoteric interpretation of Judaism. This self-perception of the Kabbalists has for no particularly good reason been systematically disregarded by modern researchers, writes Idel. The traditional understanding of Kabbalah needs, therefore, to be carefully re-evaluated, and serious work must be invested in Jewish texts which need to be meticulously inspected as relevant sources for later mystical or mythical motifs amongst the Kabbalists, concludes Idel. I'd like to add one more source for the speculation of the Kabbalists besides for the Neoplatonic that we've been already aware of since Shalom and earlier, and the Jewish sources which Idel, only rightly draws to our attention, I think that there's a third source which is perhaps still overlooked in the scholarship, although Tamar Persico and some others have pointed in this direction. Besides for being scholars and thinkers exposed to a variety of schools of thought, I think there's still another source which we're overlooking here in the Kabbalistic formulation of Kabbalah, which is the human subject and human organism itself. Besides her being scholars reading and engaging in all of these texts and schools of thought, which is the primary way which they're analyzed by, not surprisingly, scholars who are engaging in the history of thought, the early Kabbalists were also humans having human experiences. Among those experiences, it's safe to assume that being mystics, they were also having what we call mystical experiences. A mystic that, for sake of argument, experiences in their own subjectivity the unity of all reality, the oneness. Beneath and beyond all being, has to reconcile that experience with the multiplicity of their everyday ordinary reality, what they normally experience, which is the world of multiplicity. The juxtaposition of these two, the mystical experience on the one hand and the ordinary experience on the other, leads to a natural question, the question of the one and the many. This question of the one and the many, while indeed receiving important articulation and treatment by the Neoplatonists, is not a Neoplatonic question per se, it's a human question. It's a question that was asked by humans in the West that predated Neoplatonism and a question that's been asked in the East by humans who, as far as we can tell, had no contact with Neoplatonic thought. And furthermore, the logic that humans have employed in their attempts to answer this basic human question which arises in reaction to what's really a basic human experience, mystical experience, The ants that have been proposed to it have taken on similar shape wherever it's been tried. Something that we, if we can put the pieces together, we could perhaps call a universal logic or grammar of mysticism. Something that still deserves critical exploration. This universality that we're proposing isn't some magical thinking or some early modern naive conjecture. It's just a product of there being a very limited number of sensible ways to reconcile the one with the many, and the better ones among them rose to the top, naturally. Specific ideas, such as a hierarchical great chain of being, bridging the one and the many, is a crowd favorite. Tied into that is a theory of emanation to explain the way that the one proverbially descends the proverbial ladder, together with a theory of return by which the soul comes back to its source in the true reality of the one, an idea which will be expressed by the Kabbalists as Ratziboshuv leaning on the movement of the angels in Ezekiel's vision. Even ideas like Tzimtzum, the contraction of the divine self so that the world of multiplicity could come into being, these ideas, and the ones we've been mentioning earlier, because of just how helpful they are in solving what is really a basic human question, the question of the one and the many, show up again and again, all over the world, in Mesopotamia, Egypt, and Greece, Persia, Rome and Athens, China and India, Spain, France and Germany. We should be quick to jump to any premature conclusions of influence, with a question so basic as this that also has a few limited good answers, before exploring the possibility of a basic universal structure, logic, or grammar of mysticism per se, of this grand wrestle between unity and multiplicity as such. In the words of Menashe Ben a fascinating 17th century Kabbalist, scholar, and diplomat, who we'll hopefully have a chance to discuss in greater depth in the next class, while discussing the question of the immortality of the soul, Menashe writes like this, Ancient philosophers like Pythagoras, Plato, Plotinus, and Aristotle had recognized this tenet, as if the nature of the truth compelled them to believe this principle without the reception of the divine law but by means of natural light alone. Namely, that truths that come down to one tradition via the light of revelation might equally come down to another by the natural light of reason alone. Discovering and admitting the affinity between revelation and reason, or between one tradition and another, does not weaken the light of revelation, nor the sacredness of tradition, but, on the contrary, strengthens it. In today's episode, we presented three, maybe four themes, depending how you count them, to trace the reception of Neoplatonism in the hands of the early Kabbalists, negative theology, unium mystica, emanationism, and the theory of the forms, and we got a chance to see briefly how some of those themes made their way from the medieval Jewish philosophers into the first texts of the Kabbalists, and where the Kabbalists themselves point out those parallels. We questioned the primacy of the Neoplatonic influence and external influences in general, and lastly opened up the possibility of considering some of the questions Of the mystics and the solutions given to them as human questions prompted by human experiences and the possibility that the answers given to these basic questions might likewise have a certain inherent universality to them in next episode we're going to skip ahead 200 years to the 15th century to see how Kabbalists, leading up to during and following the renaissance adopt adapt incorporate or reject neoplatonism until now this story has been child's play it's in the Renaissance, the rebirth of Plato and Neoplatonism, where things really get wild. Catch you next week. Make sure to check out the videos being made by our collaborators and friends here on YouTube, by Justin Sledge on Esoterica, Philip Home on Let's Talk Religion, Angela Puka on Angela's Symposium, Dan Attrell on The Modern Medicist, and John Verveke. Links all down in the description. Thank you for watching. Thank you to the Patreons, support this work we are doing here if you can afford to please do consider joining them and until next time keep seeking